Tell all the truth, says Emily Dickinson. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies. That is to say, if you have something to say, come at it from the side. Give it some color and drama. Sliders are more interesting than fastballs. And that's how Jesus taught his truths by telling stories. We're looking at Jesus' parables from the Gospel of Luke this summer at Kenilworth Union. This story from chapter 12. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Friend, who set me to be a judge over you? And Jesus said to the crowd, Take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then he told them a story. The land of a rich man produced abundantly, and the man thought to himself, What should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger barns, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to the man, You fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you, and the things you have prepared Whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. Pray with me. Blessed Jesus, at your word we are gathered all to hear you. Let our hearts and souls be stirred now to seek and love and fear you. By your teachings true and holy, drawn from earth to love you solely. Amen. So this is not exactly one of Jesus' sweeter little yarns, is it? It's not as harmless as that story about the fertile seed that falls on productive soil, nor as universally acclaimed as that greatest of all oxymorons, the Good Samaritan. This one does not have a happy ending, You fool, says Jesus, this very night your life will be required of you. And all this stuff that you've piled up, whose shall it be? As my son might say, Dad, you're harshing my mellow. (laughs) But let me start by tangling Jesus on on this little story, on his point in the story. The villain of this story, the guy God calls a fool, is in fact a hardworking, sensible, long range planner, right? He is a man of tomorrow. He is the exact opposite of the prodigal son who squanders his inheritance on riotous living. This guy doesn't squander, he saves. People like him are the heroes of Adam Smith's wealth of nations. He is a proto-capitalist. Excess capital stored up against the future and then invested in other enterprises makes some very, very rich puts most in the middle class, and leaves only a few behind. That's Adam Smith. Grain in silos is almost literally money in the bank. It's education for your children, stimulant to the economy, and security against old age when your knees are too creaky to pull a plow through the recalcitrant soil. Why is Jesus so hard on this guy? And by the way, he's hitting a little close to home, isn't he? Kenilworth is the land of the bigger barns. 
Now it's true, our barns hold people, not grain, but they're big. Lots of square footage for all of us to rattle around in. And not only that, but Kenilworth is a haven for those who are people of tomorrow, right? Many, many, many of us make our living by finding safe havens for excess capital. I once worked in a church where people made something. That was kind of nice. I, I lived in Grand Rapids, Michigan. People worked at Steelcase where they made desks for the office or at Baker where they made sofas for the living room. Last two churches I've served, people don't make anything. They store things, right? So if you work for Northern Trust or BMO Harris or Morgan Stanley or Merrill Lynch, you're like this guy in the story. You're build, building bigger silos to store excess capital. The silos are paper, it's true, but they're still silos. A thousand shares of GE stock is a paper silo. It's cap excess capital stored against the future. And it's your job to build the silos bigger, right? If, they don't, if you don't build the silos bigger, you get fired. So what's Jesus' problem with this guy? Well, I think he has some points, so let's look seriously at what he's trying to tell us here and see if there's some God's truth for us. First of all, God calls this guy in the story a fool because of his misplaced self-congratulation, right? It's a very short, very simple story, but it's very carefully constructed. It's a t tiny masterpiece, really. Look how it begins. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. It wasn't him, it was the land. Now Jesus not saying not saying that he didn't work hard. If you're a gardener, you have some sympathy for the farmer who pulls a plow through the recalcitrant dust. You know what that farmer does, how hard he works. That's not what he's saying. It's still all gift, right? It was the fecundity of the soil, the heat of a star, the almost miraculous generativity of the necessary rains, a photosynthetic alchemy by which inert nitrogen, carbon, and hydrogen morph into consumable energy. This is all, George Buttrick puts it like this, this man was carried to fortune on a fecundity a light, a heat, a constancy of nature's cycles, and he called it all mine. There's nothing wrong with planning for the future, but if you are the recipient of an extravagant blessing, could you take just a moment to thank the giver of every good and perfect gift? Maybe the first thing you can say is, thank you, God, rather than three cheers for me. It's the first lesson. Second lesson, Jesus wants us to know that we can never get enough of what we don't really want. Yes, we want so many things. We want Venice. We want Waikiki. We want a new Lexus. We want 7,000 square feet. We want a tennis court and a swimming pool. We want Fendi, Prada, Kelvin, and Ralph. But that's not what we want. These things cannot give us joy and they cannot make us peaceful. What we want can't be touched. What we want can't be put in a bank. What we want is God. And Jesus understands, you see, that this guy is trying to slake his thirst with the wrong brew. It's the way the 19th century philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer put it. 
Money is like seawater, he says. Money is like seawater. The more we drink, the thirstier we are. Yes? And so you might notice that we are often undone, not by what we lack, but by what we have too much of. In a strange twist of expectation, we're defeated by, not by what we don't have, but by what we do. This long litany of disgrace, Bernie Madoff, Alex Rodriguez, Maria Sharapova, Barbara Bird Bennett, Phil Mickelson, the city of Chicago, the state of Illinois, and the United States of America. Debt, debt, debt. Did the real housewives of wherever really need all that plastic surgery? Weren't they beautiful enough with God's original equipment? And so Harvard Business School professor Clay Christensen teaches a course at Harvard, and on the last day, the last lecture he gives is called, How Will You Measure Your Life? Dr. Christensen is not only a professor at Harvard, he was also a student there in his younger days, and he remembers attending all those beautiful Harvard class reunions. And he says, you know, when we came to the fifth reunion, everybody was doing so great. They were happy, they were shining, they were flourishing. They'd all married spouses who were more attractive than they are. They hadn't had children yet. They were all having a blast. And then Dr. Kristen says, well, I came back for the 20th reunion and the 25th and the 30th. And many of my classmates had been divorced from their spouses. And their spouses had taken their children to the opposite coast where they were being raised by strangers and people were not at all happy. And then he goes on to point out, you know, these are brilliant, hardworking, well-meaning individuals. Nobody graduated from Harvard planning to get a divorce years later or planning to raise children who hated their guts. That's not how anybody went into life with a plan. But what happens, he says, we can't help ourselves. We are drawn to instant gratification. And careers are much easier than families, right? It's easy to be successful at work. That's intense and instant gratification. And we're human animals. We just can't help ourselves. It takes 25 years to build a happy marriage, right? It takes... 25 years to raise beautiful children and that's way too slow for us and so we pour immense amounts of energies into the stuff we really don't want the flashy stuff the baubles of life so that's the second lesson you can't get enough of what you don't really want third lesson <laughs> look how lonely this is a minor master but look how lonely this guy is He's the only character in this story. God's in it too. But the only human character is this guy. No hint of family or friends. He's all alone. And look at the little soliloquy he's uh, repeating to himself, trying to figure out what he's going to do. Internal, mo internal monologue, a torrent of first-person singular pronouns. This is what I will do, he says. I will build bigger barns, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to myself, self, you have ample goods laid up for the future. Relax, eat, and drink, and be merry. That soliloquy in my English version is exactly 63 words. Of those 63 words, 11 are I, me, my, mine, or self. He's all alone. 
He's a great partier. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. The thing is, there's nobody to party with. Do you know somebody who is the only character in his own story? How are you finding him? Are you having a good time? Fourth lesson and last. Notice that while working for tomorrow is a great thing, it really is. Most of us earn our livings that way. While working for tomorrow is a great thing, all we have is today. Those sad, sad words. You fool, this very night your life will be required of you. You just never know. And all these things that you've piled up, whose will they be? What are we going to do with this stuff? Are we going to have a rummage sale with it? We never know when our life will be required of us, and when it is, will we suddenly realize, too late, like the guy in Jesus' story, that we've been so busy earning a living that we never lived a life? So I'll close with a second parable. This is a great parable, too. This is told by uh, Fred Craddock. Fred used to teach at Candler School of Theology, where Joe is getting her doctorate just now. He was the finest homiletician in America and one of the greatest preachers in America in the late 20th century. He died about a year ago. I miss him. And this is the parable he tells. I've never been to the Greyhound races, he says, but I've seen them on television. And they have these beautiful dogs. Well, I say beautiful dogs. Actually, they're pretty ugly. But they have these dogs, and they run this mechanical rabbit around the track. And when the dogs get to the point where they can no longer race, the racetrack puts an ad in the newspaper and tells the public that these dogs are up for adoption, and if these dogs are not adopted, they will be destroyed. Then Fred says, I have this niece in Arizona who can't stand the thought that these dogs will be destroyed, so she keeps adopting these greyhounds over and over and over again. She has several in her house at any one time. And one day, Fred goes over there to visit, and this great big spotted greyhound dog is laying on his side in the carpet. And there's this little toddler pulling on its tail, and there's another little older kid resting his head on the greyhound's belly. And Fred says, I said to the dog, you still racing? And the dog says, no, I don't race anymore. I said, do you miss the glitter and excitement of the track? No, I don't miss that, said the dog. Well, what's the matter? Did you get too old to race? And the dog said, no, I still had some race left in me. Well, what then? Did you not win? No, I won all the time. I won over a million dollars for my owner. Well, what was it? Did they treat you badly? He says, no, we were treated like royalty when we were racing. Did you get crippled? No, I was very healthy. Well, what happened? The dog said, I just quit. Fred said, you quit? Why'd you quit? I discovered that what I was chasing was not really a rabbit. And I quit. (laughs) The dog looks at Fred and he says, all that chasing, all that running around, running in circles, in circles, in circles all the time, and it wasn't even real. You can't get enough of what you don't really want. It's something to think about. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen.